This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 208. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I share a piece of my fiction with you, available in audio for the first time anywhere. I'll also share the latest on my writing endeavors. More on that later in the show. For now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 66 in my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. It has been nearly two months since Kate has seen her partner, David Silverleaf. In that time, she has left Precinct 9, joined the Special Investigations Division, met her new partner, Lizzie Moore, gotten blackout drunk, been haunted by the shackled god, been stalked by an immortal wizard, exposed an ancient doomsday cult, channeled an entire ley line through her own body, survived the flooding of a secret base, and discovered that she is unexpectedly attracted to her best friend, Morgan. It's been a lot to process. Meanwhile, David has been half a world away, assisting the Empire and the Lothanasi in secret diplomatic talks with the spirits of the Telvari Rift. Working for weeks in the jungle, far from contact with the outside world, David knows nothing of what has happened while he was away. Meanwhile, the Metamore City Police Department has undergone its own shake-up. Captain Shaw, the head of Special Investigations, has been missing in action, and Kate, Lizzie, and Captain Montgomery know why. Shaw is one of the leaders of the Brotherhood of the Sepulchre. Shaw escaped from the underground base, flooding it in the process, and has gone into hiding from the immortal wizard Murakir. Without Shaw's guidance, SID was unable to respond effectively when the Vampire Syndicate unleashed a devastating counterattack against the Brotherhood's known and suspected members in Metamore's ruling class. What will become of SID now? remains to be seen. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 66 Tuesday, June 5th Kate was waiting at the terminal in Matthias Skyport when David Silverleaf came down the jetway. She ran to meet him, threw her arms around him, and pulled him into a fierce hug. Hello to you too, David said, wrapping his arms around her in turn. Kate pressed her face into his long black hair, breathing in his elven scent, like fallen leaves, crushed herbs, wet earth, and a hint of a predator's musk. When she spoke, her voice was low and thick with emotion. Don't you ever leave me alone that long again, you big jerk. 
David's arm squeezed her a little tighter. I missed you too, he said. They withdrew to arm's length and looked each other up and down. Neither of them were in their usual on-the-job wear. Kate had finally let go of her Kathleen Kittridge glamour, so her skin was back to its usual light golden cast. She had dyed her hair back to a chestnut brown, something close to her natural shade, but with a touch more red in it. She wore a forest green top with spaghetti straps, mid-rise denim shorts, and quarter-strap sandals, and with the sweltering heat outside, even that felt like too many clothes. David wore khaki cargo shorts, heavy hiking boots, and a green cotton t-shirt that read, Life Mages Do It Outside. Kate laughed when she noticed the shirt. That does not suit you at all. David grinned, his violet eyes sparkling. It was a gift from one of the other members of our expedition. You remember Agent Stanton? Kate's eyebrows shot up. Kelsey? I guess she got over being scared of you. Apparently with the aid of gentle mockery, David agreed. I'll have to tell you about our adventures at the Rift. I've become quite fond of her. His grin turned a little goofy and self-conscious then. That was unlike him, and she wondered at it for a moment, then gasped in understanding. <laughs> oh, gods! David, did you get laid? The elf actually blushed at that. Well, yes. Kate slipped her arm around his shoulders, and together they started walking toward the baggage claim. Then, yes, you absolutely have to tell me everything. They chatted amiably, all the way through retrieving David's bags and the trip back down to Kate's skimmer. She was still using one of SID's unmarked cruisers, mostly because no one had told her she had to give it back yet. She hadn't heard a word from Captain Shaw since the night of the ritual, and the brass had placed all of SID's lieutenants on administrative leave until further notice. David must have recognized that the cruiser was not one of Precinct 9's, because he quirked an eyebrow at her as she popped the trunk for him. She put off explaining for now. A message came in on both of their phones at once, as Kate pulled out of the parking garage. Kate already knew to expect it, and what it said. David opened the message on his phone, read it, and frowned. That's odd. Apparently we have a meeting today at Justice Tower. No rest for the wicked, Kate said. Do you want me to swing by your apartment so we can drop off your stuff? No need. I'm curious about the urgency, though. Do you know what this is about? Got a pretty good idea. A lot happened while you were gone. David glanced down at the phone, then back to her. Maybe you'd better fill me in. Mid-afternoon traffic was as horrid as usual for Metamore, so Kate had plenty of time to catch David up on the events of the last several weeks. He listened attentively, only occasionally interrupting to ask a clarifying question or two. Kate found herself opening up about her personal struggles as well, confessing to David about the strange dreams, the flashbacks, the panic attacks, and the personal attention she had apparently drawn from both Murakir and the otherworldly entity his spirit was bound to. She hadn't meant to say so much so fast, but once she started talking it just kept spilling out of her. I fucked up really bad, David. 
she concluded as she pulled into the garage at Justice Tower. I don't know what's going to happen to me, but there's no way I'm going back out in the field. I'm not ready. I may never be ready. She settled the cruiser down on its landing skids, shut off the turbines, and just sat there, staring out the windshield at the wall beyond. They're probably just going to put me on permanent disability and call it done. It would serve me right. David reached over and gently squeezed her shoulder. Whatever happens, I don't think you're done fighting the good fight. Have faith, Catherine. She covered his hand with her own, gripped it tightly. Okay, no sense sitting around down here. They took the passenger lift up to headquarters, exiting in the lobby where Kate had run into Murakir for the second time. There was no sign of the immortal now, but she was surprised to see Lizzie and Will waiting on one of the benches near the reception desk. Both of them were dressed very smartly, Lizzie in a navy blue jacket and knee-length skirt, and Will in a button-down shirt and tie. "'Hey, kids,' Kate said, beaming at them as they rose to greet her. "'Is it deposition day already?' Will swallowed visibly and adjusted his tie. "'Yeah. I, uh, did some research on what to expect.' His face paled a little. I didn't know about the whole cross-examining thing. You'll be fine, Lizzie said, squeezing his hand in reassurance. Just stick to the facts and don't let them make you speculate. She smiled up at David and curtsied. Hello, Detective Sivaleaf. It's an honor to meet you. David bowed to her in return. Likewise, Catherine speaks highly of you. The praise of the praiseworthy is beyond price, Lizzie said. Seriously, Kate thought. How does she talk like that with a straight face? Miss Katane, Will said. I was wondering if you could pass on a message for me. To Dr. Drowling. Kate blinked in surprise. Uh, sure. What's the message? Tell her thank you, Will said. For saving my life. I didn't understand what she did at the time, and... and I understand why you guys didn't tell me. Lizzie explained everything later, and... that was better. He licked his lips, a quick, nervous gesture. So, um, thank you. With everything else that had happened, Kate had almost forgotten about Will's brush with death. I'm glad it all worked out. You doing okay? He nodded. Better now. Um, Callie and I aren't together anymore, and that's been hard. But Lizzie and her family have all been great. They're helping me a lot. Lizzie tisked. You make it sound like you're a charity case. She turned to Kate and David. Honestly, it's been our pleasure. You should hear some of the literature discussions we've been having after dinner. We're thinking of starting a reading circle. Well, that sounds... Deathly boring, Kate thought. Intellectually stimulating, she said instead. I'm glad you're having fun. They stood around smiling at each other for a few awkward seconds. At last, Kate cleared her throat and offered her arms to Lizzie. It's been good working with you, however this turns out. Lizzie's tail twitched, and she placed her own arms atop Kate's and gripped them. It has been my privilege. 
Good luck, Kate. They parted, and all four of them traded nods before Kate and David headed up to the conference room where their meeting was scheduled to take place. Captain Montgomery was waiting there, along with Lieutenant Richards, the head of Precinct 9's homicide section, Deputy Chief Tom Bollinger, who oversaw the Central Division of the Detective Bureau, Deputy Chief Janice Atta, who was Captain Shaw's superior in charge of SID, and Bureau Chief Francis Cotton, head of the Detective Bureau as a whole. An aide sat in the corner behind Chief Cotton, his laptop computer ready to take notes. Kate had only met these senior officers on a handful of occasions, and had never been in a room with all three of them. She swallowed down the lump in her throat, and sat down next to Montgomery, with David taking the seat on her other side. Chief Cotton surveyed the faces around the table in silence. She was an androgyne in her early sixties, and her beautiful features had lost whatever softness they once had, taking on a hard, austere look that reminded Kate of marble statues, or dragons. Her steel-gray hair was immaculately styled in a short, practical cut, which matched her conservative gray business suit. Her dark eyes peered at them all over a thin, rectangular pair of wire-rimmed glasses. "'Is everyone here now?' she asked. Captain Montgomery nodded, and she continued. "'Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have a problem. We are here today to take steps we hope will correct it.' She gestured to Deputy Chief Atta. "'Janice?' Atta was a shorey woman in her mid-fifties, slender and elegant-looking, with dark skin and eyes, her hair in tightly coiled braids. She steepled her long fingers in front of her as she spoke. Captain Shaw submitted their resignation on Thursday, after taking a week of paid leave. The letter was notarized and sent by courier, and since I have not been able to reach them by phone or email— I must conclude that the message is genuine. Furthermore, we now have confirmation that two of their lieutenants were among the dead in the recent... incident. Two others have also resigned. Taken together, we have a large hole in the command structure at Special Investigations. Montgomery raised a hand. With respect, ma'am, the problem at SID is a lot bigger than just a few missing personnel. Shaw ran that division like their own private cult. Literally, from the look of things. Atta's lips compressed into a hard line. I am aware of the allegations against Captain Shaw, Captain Montgomery. One of the reasons they cited for their resignation was a belief that they would not be given a fair hearing in the current environment of public hysteria. Cotton made a cutting gesture with her hand. Enough. What's done is done. We'll get to the bottom of this so-called brotherhood in due time. Right now I've got vampires murdering nobles in their own homes, the streets on the verge of open war, and our elite division just lost half of its senior staff. We need to restore public confidence in the department. Deputy Bollinger spoke up, directing his words down the table to Kate and David. After discussion with myself and Deputy Atta, Captain Montgomery has agreed to accept command of special investigations. Lieutenant Katane, you will remain at SID and report to Montgomery. Lieutenant Richards is being promoted to captain. He'll take over command of Precinct 9. 
Lieutenant Silverleaf, you have a choice. You can either stay at Precinct 9 and take charge of Homicide Section, or you can join Captain Montgomery at SID. David's ears perked up in surprise. I see. He turned to Kate, locking eyes with her for a long moment. Kate smiled hopefully, then mouthed the word, Please. Lieutenant Richards, I have the utmost respect for you, David said, turning his attention to the Arambian man. I have no doubt you will make a superb captain at Precinct 9. He reached over and took Kate's hand. But I'm afraid I cannot abandon my partner. I will go with Captain Montgomery. Richards gave him a short nod, as if he'd expected nothing else. I figured. Good luck, Silverleaf. He turned his gaze to include Montgomery and Kate. And to you two as well. You're going to need it. Kate raised her hand. Um, excuse me. Everyone turned to look at her. Kate's stomach flip-flopped, but she forged ahead. Look, I'm really happy about the idea of working for Captain Montgomery again. But, um, I need to make sure everyone here understands my situation. She paused, waiting to see if anyone would cut in and spare her the explanation. No one did. She took a deep breath, then said the words she had been terrified to speak out loud. I have post-traumatic stress, she said, and her voice only quavered a little. From the fight under the Citadel, back in April, I can't fire my gun. I get flashbacks and panic attacks from the sound of gunfire. Captain Shaw's psychologist cleared me for field work, but he shouldn't have. I'm not... well. She blinked her eyes hard, tried to push back the tears that were welling up in them. I thought I could fix this on my own, but I can't. I need help. And I can't put anyone else in harm's way because I didn't deal with my issues. She lowered her head and looked at her hands. Anyway, I figure you should know that before you make any decisions. The room fell silent for a long moment. Kate couldn't look at anybody. She couldn't bear to see the pity, disgust, and disappointment she expected on their faces. Then Montgomery reached over and placed one clawed, black-furred hand on top of hers. We know, Lieutenant, the captain said. His voice was as gentle as Kate had ever heard it. We've reviewed Dr. Tamlin's case notes and I consulted with him by phone yesterday. Kate looked up sharply. You found Tamlin? He's alive? He found us, Montgomery said, smiling briefly. He called in on the 24th, told us he was taking some leave, but that he was okay. Kate felt a little dizzy. Gods, that is... that's great. What did he say about me? That you shouldn't be involved in any more field work for the time being, but as long as you go back to therapy, you could lead a task force without too much trouble. The corner of his muzzle turned up in a smirk. Which is what you should be doing anyway, Lieutenant. I need you to take charge of my more junior detectives, not go raiding the secret bases of nefarious evildoers. Kate blushed. 
two months ago she wouldn't have thought of herself as someone for other people to follow. But in the catacombs under the Citadel, and in the operation against the Brotherhood, that was exactly what her allies had done. They had looked to her for leadership, and trusted her decisions. And if she could lead a squad of Lightbringers, or a ragged group of runners, outcasts, and troublemakers— then she could probably lead a team of cops, too. "'What's the task force?' Kate asked. Montgomery's eyes glinted. "'Terrorism,' he said. "'You'll be in charge of hunting down nefarious evildoers, and stopping their plots to destroy the city.' "'Or presumably the world,' David added. "'Or the world,' Montgomery agreed. "'As long as it happens on our turf, they're fair game.' What do you say, Lieutenant? Kate felt a slow grin spread across her face. She turned her hand over and gripped Montgomery's hard. I'm in, she said. Chief Cotton dismissed the meeting, and Kate and David walked out with Captain Montgomery. They didn't say anything until they were back in the lift tube heading down to the garage. Special investigations, Kate said. That's a hell of a promotion, Cap. Congratulations. Montgomery snorted. It's a damned snake pit, and you know it. We have no idea how many Brotherhood agents are still inside, waiting for a chance to put a knife in my back. And even the ones who aren't Brotherhood had a lot personally invested in Shaw. They aren't going to like the way their captain was pushed out. He gestured at Kate and David. That's why I wanted you two there with me. I need you to help me watch my back. Of course, Kate said. You can count on us, Cap. She and David each offered Montgomery a hand. He took them both and gripped them, his claws flexing unconsciously against their skin. The Brotherhood will likely keep a low profile for now, David observed. When a predator's den is exposed... Its first instinct is to find a new lair, not to attack. Our most immediate problems are likely to be with the Syndicate and the White Widow. You're probably right, Montgomery agreed. However it plays out, we'll have plenty of work to keep us busy. Just the way we like it, Kate said. And that's the end of Chapter 66. Come back next time, when Kate and Morgan tie up some loose ends, and face a whole new set of questions about their relationship. Neil Gaiman said, The one thing that you have that nobody else has is you. Your voice, your mind, your story, your vision. So write, and draw, and build, and play, and dance, and live as only you can. So, let's see what I've been bringing to the table lately. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 4,104 words this week, over the course of 5.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 714 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 16 days without breaking my chain. Looking back on the month of October, I wrote 16,488 words in 25 days, averaging 660 words per day.
That ranks 26th out of the 54 months since I started keeping track. I also met my goal of riding on at least 24 days for the seventh time this year. I spent 27.5 hours riding last month. Compared to September, my word count increased by 66%, and my writing time increased by 83%. This week I continued working steadily on None Shall Dwell Within. Things have quieted down at work again, and I've gotten back into the habit of carving out time at lunch to get some writing done. I've also shifted my lunch break later in the afternoon. That way there aren't as many people around in the break rooms, and I'm better able to focus. I'm keeping my chapters short for this book, a habit I started in Homecoming, and which helps me feel like I'm making progress. It also makes the recording process a lot more pleasant, when my average chapter length is something I can easily record in one sitting. The book is now in Chapter 4, and the manuscript is over 10,500 words. Over on the Patreon feed, we have a new patron this week. Say hello to Dave! This week, Carol Foote finished her third illustration for A Wizard Family Solstice. It's from the end of Part 1, when Artax catches John and Esme messing around in the back rooms of Spells for You. This one is worth seeing for the facial expressions alone, which are hilarious. This finished bonus art is visible to all patrons, and a preview is available on the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group. If you like this show and want to help me keep making it, becoming a patron is the best way to support me. 91% of what you pledge goes directly to me. That's a higher rate than I get in any ebook market, and the ongoing support of a monthly pledge helps me plan for expenses, like cover art, printing costs, and web hosting. Every patron gets the monthly bonus art, and access to the the behind-the-episode podcast commentaries. Plus, if you're a patron by the end of November, you can get a lovely Metamore City holiday card mailed directly to you. These cards are printed on deluxe-quality cardstock with a linen finish, and they feature exclusive, full-color artwork that you can't get anywhere else. I've already seen the preview sketches for this year's cards, and I think you're going to love them. To get started, go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Take a look at the donation tiers and choose the one that's right for you. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. 
The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.